Library Land Loves, a podcast from the Ontario Library Association. I'm your host, Michelle Arbuckle, and today we're veering from our typical format to host an author chat. If you are a follower of the Lone Stars titles, then you are likely familiar with Lorraine McKeon's Women of the Pandemic, which was a Lone Star adult top pick in April of this year. Loren has recently been featured in many of the larger library systems across Canada since her book was released last month. Loren is the author of F-Bomb and No More Nice Girls. She is formerly the digital editor at The Walrus and editor of This Magazine. Her work has appeared in Toronto Life, Chatelaine, Hazlitt and The Walrus. Author Stacey May Fowles said of Lorraine that she is one of the most important journalists writing about feminist issues in this country today. She wrote that her previous work, No More Nice Girls, was a revelation, an inspiration, a punch in the gut, and a fierce rallying cry. And I had exactly the same type of reaction to this, her most recent work, Women of the Pandemic, Stories from the Frontlines of COVID-19. It's a series of portraits of women across Canada, women who come from a variety of backgrounds, situations, and professions. And it documents really clearly how the pandemic evolved over those early months, and it follows and highlights the stories of some of the female researchers and medical professionals who were involved in tracking and researching COVID-19, but also the struggles of women who were just trying to make their way through it. Their stories of creativity and determination and strength and real humanity. It's a really important work, I think, for Libraryland to be familiar with. We are a female-dominated industry, and we know the work and the challenges that we are all facing. And I think most importantly, the challenges that our frontline community-facing staff are dealing with. So we're going to take a quick break, and I'll be right back with Loren McKeon. Hello, Loren. Welcome to Libraryland Loves. Hi, thanks for having me. And thanks for that lovely introduction. You're very welcome. I'm very, very happy to, to have you here, to have read your work. And um, I have to say, I was, I was really moved by it. Uh, I couldn't expand on the words of, of, uh, of Stacey May. So I just <laughs> had to use her as that, honestly, a, a punch to the gut. Um, but one that I think was, was, was necessary and needed. Um, so you've obviously been doing, as I mentioned, touring around to various libraries around the country. I know Toronto Public Library and Edmonton, I think have both hosted you recently. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering in those events, which of your stories or portraits from the book are the ones that are resonating the most with people? You know, I've been really happy and um, gratified to see that what tends to resonate most, no matter the location, um, whether it's the library events or even readers that I've heard from, are those diverse stories. And there's been a real appreciation um, from people to hear from not only um, medical frontline workers, but also to hear from es- about essential workers, to read about PSWs, to read about you know the truck drivers that are carting our supplies, to read about mothers, to read about people working in food processing plants. Um, So what I've heard most is not just an appreciation for one story, but an appreciation for um, the diversity and the breadth of stories. And that means a lot to me because I was so intentional about trying to do that. So I'm glad that it is resonating. Absolutely. And I agree. I mean, the variety of stories from all of those different perspectives, like I said, it's, it's fascinating. And, and you're right, we don't get to hear a lot about them 
I did find, you know, right off the, the opening of the book, when you're talking about all of the women who were involved in the tracking and the research behind COVID-19, I mean, mm-hmm. I had no idea about any of those women and their stories. So I'm glad their stories are out there. Yeah. And I think, you know, those are the stories we need to hear. We need to hear the stories that we're not as familiar with, especially as we think about recovery and what recovery will look like. Like, I don't think that we can build a better, you know, world, Canada, um, you know, post-COVID, fingers crossed, world um, without hearing those stories and without fully acknowledging what everyone's been through and especially what, you know, people have experienced um, from those pockets of Canada that we haven't heard from as much or those women that we don't know their stories. I think, you know, we need to hear those stories if we're going to build um, and think about recovery in the best ways that we can. Mm -hmm. In chapter four, you have a quote, heroes are signs of a failed system. I'm going to say that again, because it really hit me. Heroes are a sign of a failed system. And the women that you have, that you talk to, and that you mention in that chapter, they say that they don't like to describe themselves as heroes, that they didn't, they they didn't maybe identify with that word. And I, um, and the idea that we as women will work harder in lieu of a failed system, even if that results in self-harm, I think really resonated with me. And I think it will with many in library land. I just want to read this one quote, if you don't mind. This is on page 112. And it's the story of Pressy McGill. Am I saying her name correctly? Pressy, yeah. Pressy. Pressy McGill is a housekeeper at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver. And you wrote this. We can fight this, she'd tell herself donning her N95 mask, face shield, goggles, and gown. We can do it. She was skilled and she had the gear and there was no way she could get infected if she followed proper protocols. She willed herself to believe it every time she read a sign on a patient's door, telling her how sick they were, how high her risk was, what she had to put on before heading in, everything she had to spray and wipe and mop. All around the world, people were dying and if she really loved her neighbors, and she did, then she had to clean the rooms where the virus waited. We have to clean, she told me. We have to sanitize so that we can get rid of this virus. The thought of saving just one person kept her going through the fear. Oh my gosh. I mean, what an intense quote that is. <laughs> yes. You know, and I remember, the, you know, talking to her and it also hit me the same way when she said that, you know, I wanted to show that it wasn't just, you know, doctors and nurses in the hospitals who of course have done tremendous work Mm -hmm. and we owe a huge deal to, but that there are whole teams of other people that keep the hospital going that are so important. And, you know, she said, of course she said it best herself, which is just, if we don't, we're not here doing this work, if we're not cleaning the hospitals, if we're not sanitizing everything, then, you know, this, this virus will spread. It will spread through our hospitals. We'll see terrible outbreaks. Um, and, but the fear, you know, the fear that she, she had and that, you know, people do have, who don't necessarily have the medical training, um, who, um, you know, are not prepared to work in an outbreak situation, but are still going because they know they play such a vital role and they want everyone Mm -hmm. to be safe. I think it's just, you, you know, I got off the phone and I had the same kind of like, wow, reaction because, you know, those stories just are so impactful. Yeah. And I know there's many library managers and leaders that have been encouraging their staff to be aware of their limits and pay more attention to their mental health and capacities during the pandemic. But I've also heard stories 
of library workers pushing back on those requests and being resentful of those types of recommendations because they work and they in such a way and they feel like their community needs them. It's something that in library land is referred to as vocational awe. I'm not sure if you've mm. heard of that phrase before. Um, but many of those workers, you know, they have this feeling like they're here, here to serve the community and they will do so at a cost to their own selves. I mean, many of your stories are about these great and giving humanitarians, but I think they're also warning calls for us. What are your thoughts on women that are traveling that line between working as hard as you can, but knowing how to protect yourself and when and how to stop being the hero? That's so tough, right? Because I think, um, you know, a lot of my work and not just work for women of the pandemic looks at the ways in which women um, do push themselves and maybe don't take care of themselves and don't know when to stop. Um, and, you know, there's a whole, you know, that's a really soupy mess of, you know, expectations that others have on us, expectations that we put on ourselves, um, the, the instincts that we do have to care and that, you know, the empathy that a lot of women have. So I think it's really tough. And I would say, you know, going back to this idea of heroes um, and also the idea of resilience, both of those things um, are brought up to me when you ask that. And it's the idea that, you know, heroes are born out of, and a lot of people have said this, heroes are born out of, you know, system failures. Mm -hmm. um, if we had enough nurses and doctors and resources in our medical system, people wouldn't have to push themselves so hard that they feel like heroes. Mm -hmm. um, if policies were in place and we had maybe navigated the pandemic better and certainly the third wave um, in Ontario better, then maybe people wouldn't feel right now that by doing the essential service of going to the library that they're also putting themselves in danger. So I think, you know, if we had better resources, if we had navigated better, better policy decisions were made, a lot of women wouldn't be in this position. Mm -hmm. The resilience part, you know, what I think comes in is that I think, you know, people, of course, like I've spoke to so many people, you know, grocery store workers, everyone who felt like, you know, I'm doing this for my community and it shows incredible resilience. But again, resilience is also born out of um, tragedy and trauma and um, burnout and feeling that you have to do these things and go beyond. And I think that, you know, we should just be really careful um, to think and stop and put ourselves first too sometimes um, because you know as many people say you can't pour from an empty cup and um, you know it's it's so tough because of course we want to help our community but I think that we also have to care for ourselves so that um, we can help our communities and we can be there. Absolutely kind of along that same idea and how you're maybe filling your cup. I'm wondering, your writing is so open and honest and you frequently expose your own trauma in ways that, I mean, it, it guts me, it leaves me breathless the way that you, you write about your, your experiences. And the stories in this book are equally impactful. I can imagine there's probably a number that you didn't even include in the book that you heard. So I'm wondering if you can tell us about the toll of all of this emotional labor from your work on you. How did you care for yourself during the writing process? How did you keep your cup filled? Yeah, thanks for asking that. I think it is tough because, you know, I, I yes, I spoke to over 50 women, mm -hmm. not every 
woman's story was included in the book, not because it wasn't, you know, important mm -hmm. or devastating, just because there's not enough space <laughs> in one book to include all these stories. And it's so tough to decide whose story to include and how much. And absolutely, there were phone calls, you know, where I got off the phone or the Zoom because, you know, I wasn't meeting anyone in person for this one and cried and just like had that moment of like the gut punch because, you know, as a journalist, I don't, I don't cry on the phone or you don't show that pain on the phone because you don't want to, um, you know, someone sharing something so raw and open with you, you're not going to burden them with your emotional reaction yeah. too, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to listen and to process and to honor their story. But absolutely, once I got off the phone, it, it just was so heavy. And I think that, you know, it was in, I had an incredible privilege to hear all these stories um, from people across Canada and what they were experiencing. But it also wasn't lost on me that my experience of the pandemic was so different for that because I'm hearing all these, these stories and expanding beyond the bubble of, um, you know, my own life to take in these stories. And they were inspiring, but they were also devastating. And mm -hmm. I think, um, yeah, it was tough. It was tough. And um, to fill my cup during that time, you know, I, I went for walks in the, in the wilderness. I, um, well, it, well, it was still safe. And I write about this a little bit in the book too. I did you know, I'm part of a boxing club that unfortunately mm -hmm. was closed um, during the pandemic, but I did socially distance boxing in the park, which I'm sure was a thing to behold <laughs> for the people that walked by and saw it. <laughs> but, you know, it's just trying to find that community and try to find those ways um, through it as well. And I, and I think, you know, a lot of people I spoke to did the same thing. You know, we, we baked, we tried to Zoom our friends, we went for walks, we did crafts that we've never done <laughs> before, you know. Um, I think my house is filled with bad crafts now, but you know, it's, it's these little things, but it doesn't feel like enough sometimes. And I think, you know, um, I think a lot of people are seeing now, a lot of women in particular are seeing now that it, you know, we, we've tried really hard, but there is that emotional impact that's going to come out and will continue to reverberate, um, you know, in the months to come. It's such a, a interesting thing too. It's such a personal thing because, you know, I've heard you mention in, in many interviews, the privilege that you had to work from home. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've had the same since the beginning. Um, I don't have to go anywhere. I can do everything from here. And so, and as I was reading your book, I was like, I, and I'm remembering all of those moments where I'd get off a zoom call and, and you know, it was like a trivia or book club or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I would get off and just weep, just break down, just knowing how different it was virtually from that experience in person. And that just kind of, it broke me many times. Yeah. And reading that, I, I had that instinct at first, like I really did not earn that level of, you know, perceived trauma or whatever. But I don't think that's, you know, it's, it is a personal thing. And I think that everyone is, is reacting in their own, in their own way, in a way that, um, that deserves attention. I know, Library workers have been calling members of their community at home, doing wellness checks, seeing how they're doing. And, and I know they have, for example, a condolence script for when they call and if someone has passed away. And, the, you know, you mentioned the one story of the woman who keeps calling the man uh, to connect with him to see yeah. how he's doing. And in the end, he's passed away. And I, I, that resonated with me because 
I know libraries are, are doing similar work and have those connections. And that is such a huge, um, a huge burden to deal with and, and to need a release from. And I feel like the issue of self-care and mental health first aid for library staff is such a huge issue right now and is going to continue being for a while. Mm -hmm. I don't think at this point, I don't think there's anyone left who hasn't been touched by the pandemic in some way, you know, and mm -hmm. um, whether that's having lost someone in their lives or having lost a job or, mm -hmm. you know, mental health challenges over the course of the pandemic, I think um, we've, we're all, we've all felt it deeply at this point. And I think some of us have had higher risk for certainly um, over the course of the pandemic, but I don't think, um, you know, I don't, I don't think we can minimize or erase the emotional impact and the mental health impact um, that we've had. And I think we're only beginning to see what that will look like and the fallout of that and, you know, what's to come. And I think the other reality is, you know, when we talk about, broken systems and not having enough services, you know, we don't have enough mental health services in Canada mm -hmm. either. So there's that too, right? It's just exposing so many um, things that are already there, you know, flaws in the system that are already there. Um, so when I, when we also talk about building a better recovery, you know, I hope people like librarians and like people who might, you know, people who might not have access to mental health care or thought about it before, you know, I hope when we build recovery, we think about these things and think that, um, you know, we have to think about the people who have been exposed, who are the most vulnerable, who are suffering and when we go forward and think about how we're going to care for them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you've never written anything before with a medical focus. Is that true? That is definitely true. I'm not, a, I'm, I'm not a medical writer. Yeah. That is very true. <laughs> I'm just wondering, you must have really had to mire yourself in the details of COVID. So how did you approach that? I mean, now you're a journalist and you, you kind of do that, but how did you get into the thick of it all? Um, you know, I shouldn't, yeah, I shouldn't joke, about, but it was, I had like, uh, when I, when I wrote, when I wrote my other two books, you know, you buy other books and you do research and all yeah. the books I bought was about leadership and women in leadership and um, you know feminism and history of feminism, but this time I had like a, a like a plague stack, like a stack of books about the plague and vaccines and epidemiology and um, you know the history of outbreaks and like I bought textbooks on you know um, ones just called like on epidemics and um, you know it was a lot of reading outside of women's experiences or women's rights, which is mm -hmm. what a lot of what my work focuses on. Um, you know, a lot of my journalism work outside of my book writing is pretty wide ranging, which, which was helpful <laughs> that I'm used to, you know, writing outside of that. But yes, absolutely. It was an education in that and, you know, in reading medical reports and reading stuff from the who and making sure it was very, um, knowledgeable, but then also just really relying on the experts and the women that I spoke to and saying things like, I'm going to ask you what might seem like a dumb question, but <laughs> let me ask you, like, can you tell me how this works? Can you explain it to me in a way that is very simple that I can go on, you know, and then explain to someone else? And I think it's just, um, 
you know, we really learned over the time of COVID-19 that people don't like to admit what they don't know. Like, I think we saw the danger in that and the danger of just passing and, you know, thinking that you know something um, and passing on misinformation. So I think, you know, as a journalist, when you're in the reporting stage, you have to be humble because you don't know anything <laughs> and you have to say like, look, I don't know, I need to ask you these questions. And, you know, it was fascinating. It was fascinating to learn about viruses and how they um, are spread and how they work and how vaccines work and all of that stuff. But certainly it was, it was quite a crash course. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, um, I found that about six months in, so it was about October of last year, I think it was a combination of COVID news, second wave, and the American election, that I just stopped listening to the news. I just could mm -hmm. not consume anymore. Even though, you know, I am a library person, I, I couldn't do any more research. I couldn't look at anything, but I have a, I think as many women, I have a, a group chat of women mm -hmm. who, you know, we all bitch and complain or support each other, yes. or we all got each other our vaccine appointments and that kind of thing. Um, and there's the, we call, you know, there's one designated mom of the group chat. So the one who was always filling us in on heads mm -hmm. up, this is the announcement coming out today or whatever. So based on all your, your knowledge, were you the mom of your group chat? <laughs> I felt like I was, um, the annoying, uh, but actually <laughs> person, <laughs> and I'm not sure how my friends felt, um, and one of my friends in that group chat is actually a librarian, which is kind of funny, but um, so no, and I do think, you know, I what, but yes, I did find myself becoming the person that said, well, actually, um, <laughs> this research said this, and this is the facts on that. And that happened um, really wherever I went, like it was astounding to me how quickly misinformation could spread about mm -hmm. COVID and I understand that in some ways because we're scared and, you know, we want to believe certain things or we don't want to believe certain things. Um, and I, you know, I found that even when I would say, well, actually like this is what the research said, or I just spoke to the person who made those decisions yeah. yesterday, actually. And th these are the reasons why um, not everyone wanted to hear it. And, you know, I, and I, and I, um, and I, and I have empathy for that too, because I think that, I mean, I don't have anyone in my circle that is to the dangerous point of like misinformation, but you know, some people just, you know, like you said, wanted to turn off the news, didn't want to hear it, didn't want to hear um, those things. And I think um, I, I get it because we were just living in this very, especially during the first and second wave, this, where it just felt like total overload. And I think I mean, it still feels like that in a lot of ways, but I think we're getting to the point where we want to talk about the lessons learned and where we want to think about recovery and where we, we are ready to hear some of those stories again. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think, you know, I, when I first started my career, I was a hospital librarian at Princess Market. And even then we, we were, you know, getting the um, donations of, oh, I just forgot that woman's name. She had breast cancer. She was in the show Three's Company. Oh my gosh. She's I'm a... so bad. <laughs> names. I know what you're talking about. I can picture her like the face in my head. Yeah. Anyway, we would get donations of books that, that mm -hmm. were alternative therapies, not necessarily yes. mainstream therapies and having to make those calls about, you know, what is a legitimate source to have in a medical library or to, to be mm -hmm. telling patients about. And I think it's, 
we have not had any strong answers. We haven't had any strong techniques to kind of guide people, especially people who are afraid of illness, whether it be cancer or COVID. Um, misinformation is, I think, one of the biggest issues that we're dealing with as a society yeah. and certainly in library land. Absolutely. In journalism world too, right? That's And um, sometimes we perpetuate that misinformation unintentionally. And I think you know, we've certainly seen that we've seen the dangers of that in many ways over the past five years, but certainly like with COVID as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, my last question for you is just about next steps. So where do you see these issues in terms of equitable work, sick days? I've heard this term, the mom session of mm-hmm. women who have been driven out of the workplace. Where do you think it's all headed? And also, how can we make our collective rage productive? Because that is the one thing that I felt as I finished every chapter, just this seething rage, just kind of ra- <laughs> you know, raising inside of me, like what I felt kind of helpless in a way, like I don't even know what to do to, to help change the situations of some of these women's lives. Yeah, it's, it's tough. There is sort of, and I think like over the course of the pandemic, we've had this helpless sort of feeling mm-hmm. in many ways. Um, and it can feel especially keen right now when we do hear other women's stories. So I think it's, it's tough because on certain days, I feel very optimistic that we're starting to see change and that we are taking the lessons of these women's stories and we're listening to them and we're thinking about how to build a better recovery. On other days, um, I don't feel that way, you know, and I still feel, of course, very inspired by these women and their stories, but I don't feel as hopeful that things will change um, because some of these issues, you know, um, are deeply entrenched in society. You know, the issues of racism that we've seen, um, you know, in the forms of who has been uh, prioritized when it comes to vaccines, who's been prioritized when it comes to sick days, mm-hmm. um, who's been forced to go to work because they can't afford not to, and who, yes, has had the privilege of staying home. Um, when we see the unequal expectations that we place on mothers, you know, that of course has existed for a very long time. You know, we have things like affordable childcare that are coming up, but we also have challenges around um, whether or not many women will have jobs to go back to um, when we talk about, you know, where we're putting our economic dollars when it comes to recovery. So it really is this sort of, yes, this sort of rage and helpless feeling a lot of days. And I think that one of the first things we need to do is listen to these women's stories, remember these women's stories, hear these women's stories, share them. um, Because so often, too often, these stories get swept under the rug and we don't talk about them. So then when we talk about recovery, you know, we aren't talking about these issues. We aren't putting them first. And I think that it sounds like such a small thing in many ways, but, you know, we've, we know, and we've heard that things are very unequal when we talk about whose stories we're sharing and who we're listening to and who we're putting forward, whose voices are putting forward. And I think that has a tremendous power uh, to start building change. So I think that that's like one of the the simplest, easiest first steps is to listen to people, listen to people outside of your bubble, talk about their stories. And when we think about returning to normal, not just to be so excited that we're getting there and we can go to a restaurant and go outside again, but to really stop and think, um, 
what this means and what we want the blueprint to recovery to look like. Um, and I hope my book, you know, plays a small role in that, but we all have roles that we can play um, going forward when we think about what 2022 will look like and also beyond. Mm -hmm. That's great. Thank you so much, Loren. Do you, can you tell us what's up next for you? Have you already begun working on your next project? I have actually. Um, so I, I do have another book um, on the go that's also coming out with the same publisher, which is McClelland and Stewart. And this time I am writing about myself. <laughs> so I'm turning the lens back on me and um, I'm writing a memoir about uh, boxing and uh, recovery from sexual trauma and what that looks like and what strength looks like and how I have found my road. Uh, to recovery and how other women have too. So it's, um, I hope it will also be a hopeful story talking about some, some very um, tough things, but I think ultimately some very hopeful things. That's great. Thank you so much. Um, it's been wonderful to chat with you and, and to hear more about your work and, and um, how you fill your cup. And I can't wait to read your next work and I'm sure um, it will be equally impactful. So thank you for your time. Great, thanks for having me. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much to Loren McKeon for joining us. If you haven't already, please pick up her book, Women of the Pandemic. And another shout out to the Lone Stars list. If you're looking for titles for your own enjoyment or programming this summer, please check them out at lonestars.ca. We hope that you enjoyed this chapter of Library Land Loves. We'll chat with you next week. Bye-bye.